Pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and I pray that you would enable us by your grace to hear it and receive it and believe it and embrace it. Father, that it would be the very power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And Father, it would transform our very lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to Ezekiel in chapter 33. I want to read uh, verses 1 through 21. Ezekiel 33, verses 1 uh, to 21, please. Hear the word of God. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, that if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, that if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. Uh, he heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning, his blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes uh, any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, a wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, and that wicked person shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But, you, but if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in his injustice he, uh, that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. Yet your people say that the way of the Lord is not just when it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by them. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Now, let me set this particular passage in its context because we're beginning a new section. By the way, I was reading in a preaching magazine that you're never to begin a sermon by saying, let me set this passage in its context. Um, 
but I don't really care about those things too much uh, because it seems to me the important thing to say. They say you only have a minute to grab people's attention, but if you only have a minute's worth of attention, then you're in the wrong place. Uh, but uh, I trust it's longer than that because really, what's the point here? And the point is to understand the Word of God. And so as we come to it, you remember, if you've been with us, the first 24 chapters. In the beginning, uh, Ezekiel is called by God. He sees a tremendous vision of God. He falls on his face before him, and he's given the Word of God to eat. He's fed the Word of God, and then he's told that he's to go out and pronounce it, to announce it. And the, the announcement of this message is a difficult one in the sense that it's a message of, of judgment, really, against the city of Jerusalem. But it's not only a message of judgment against the city of Jerusalem. It's also sprinkled in a message of restoration. And then after we make it through those first 24 chapters, we come to chapters 25 through uh, 32, which I only preached one sermon from. It's a section wherein um, the nations of the world, other than Babylon, is, will be judged by God. They're being judged by God for how they treated his people, even though they treated his people uh, in a way that he had commanded of them, and that is to come against them. But he, 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 he treats all these other nations according to how they treated his people. And thus we see in those passages that God rules over all the earth. And he does so in regard to his own people and their ultimate blessing. And now we come to this chapter 33. And it's really, if you've been listening, you're saying, I heard this before. And you did. You essentially heard a great deal of this in chapter 18. Uh, there's a chapter concerning the responsibility of the people who hear the word of God. A couple of twists, but essentially the same, the same thing. We find here as we come what we've heard before, and that is Ezekiel, in a very special way, is become, being called as the watchman of God. Now everyone knows, I suspect, what a watchman does. He, he, he watches. Alright? That's how he gets his name. He watches, and in the cities, he would climb to a high position and be able to look out over the walls of the city and see who's coming, whether friend or foe. If it's foe, he has a responsibility to make an announcement, to blow the trumpet of warning, to warn people that there's an enemy coming. And he does that in such a way so that those who are in the fields, farming or watching the flocks, can come in in the safety of the city, that those in the city can take preparation, and that the military people can be mobilized to come and defend and protect the city. That's why he does this. Now, the responsibility is obviously huge. Because if he fails in his responsibility, then people die. And he's held accountable as the watchman of the city. And the people of the city have a responsibility as well to listen. Because if they don't listen, then they won't respond appropriately when the warning comes. And if they don't respond, if they stay in the field and say, well, I'm not going to heed the, the voice or the, uh, the, the sound of the trumpet. I'm not going to come in. I'm not going to take safety. And then they find themselves being massacred. It's really their fault. There's no one upon whom they can place the blame. Now, Ezekiel, in a spiritual sense, is being called in a special way, too, to take responsibility as the watchman. God has given him this special word, and he's saying to him, now go and pronounce this, this judgment, and Ezekiel does. So essentially the people are without excuse before God. They're responsible. They can't blame anyone. They can't blame their parents. They can't blame generations before them. They can't blame God. The announcement has come, and the announcement, the message is essentially one of repentance. For both, interestingly, those called the righteous and those called the wicked. 
And the call comes to those who are righteous, that is, those at the moment who appear to be living in according to God's covenant, who are trusting Him, desiring to follow Him. And he says, yet still to the righteous, don't trust in your righteousness. Because if you're trusting in your righteousness, and you transgress the law, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? Then you would probably turn around and say, whoosh, I shouldn't trust in my righteousness, should I? if I still transgress the law. So he says, if you're righteous, don't trust in your righteousness, because when you transgress the law, then you won't repent, you won't come for forgiveness, because you'll be saying, I'm okay, I'm righteous after all. So he says in verse 13, don't trust your righteousness, righteous ones, even you, come, turn. And he says to the wicked, don't trust, obviously, in your wickedness. Don't trust in your own particular life. Don't trust in the style in which you've become accustomed. Don't trust in that. But turn. Because the message here is summarized in verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? He's saying turn which is really the same notion as we use repent. I was looking in a, uh, frankly, the same preaching magazine had a little cartoon. And the caption to the cartoon was, Why Preachers Make Bad Driving Instructors. And the cartoon, the picture, was a big accident. Uh, And there was the driving instructor preacher, and there was the student driver. And the, 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 the driving instructor preacher was saying, But I told you to turn. And she says, no, you didn't. You just sat there and shouted, repent, repent. That's because, for nerdy little preachers, it means the same thing. Turn, go a different way. Don't go into that, but turn from it. And so you see, this notion of turning, God saying, turn, don't live that way. Don't trust in your righteousness. Don't trust in your own life. Turn from that and come to me. Now notice this particular plea. It's first from God. It's from God, from God himself. The very plea of God. It's it's a moral plea in the sense that it's the right thing to do. God says, turn away from your wickedness. Turn even away from trusting in your own righteousness and follow after me. Come to me, trust in me. So it's, it's, it's from God. It's moral. It's helpful. Because he says, if you don't, you're going to die. But it's not only all of those, it's also passionate and genuine. Now when we came up against this in chapter 18, I mentioned then the great mystery that's here for us as thinking people, as people who have been taught the scriptures. You wonder, how is it that God who is sovereign can feel sorrow and allow himself to feel this sorrow over the death of the wicked. Why doesn't he just convert them? He did it for you and me. Why doesn't he just convert them and spare himself this sorrow? Why doesn't he simply do that? And if he can do that, but he doesn't, then is this plea really genuine? Is it really sincere? Is it really his heart? Is it really passionate from him that he really does take no pleasure in the death of the wicked? Why is it? that God would allow himself this sorrow. Why is it? 
when the scripture says in Psalm 135, verse 6, that God does that which pleases him. Well, then why doesn't he simply please himself by not allowing the wicked to die? And death here means be judged, be condemned, have eternal spiritual, eternal death. Why, why doesn't he just change that? Since he does that which pleases him. And there's another passage that's rather interesting in Deuteronomy chapter 28. For God says, I'll delight in blessing you. But if you disobey me, I'll delight in punishing you. How can he delight in that and yet not take pleasure in the death of the wicked here? What's really going on here? And isn't it true that God has chosen some before the foundations of the world to be his, to be saved? And if that's the case, can this really be a sincere statement of the heart of God, a sincere expression of the heart of God, that he's really passionate, that he really does feel sorrow at the death of the wicked, take no pleasure in that. As we were moving through chapter 18, I said, it is true that God doesn't take delight or pleasure in the death of the wicked, and it's also true that he's sovereign and has elected some unto salvation. And I just went on from there, said, deal with it. Well, I want just to take a moment today and spread it out a bit. Because there's great mystery here. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but there's great mystery here. Because the short answer to how can all this be true is, I don't know. Now, the long answer to that is, well, longer. More complicated than that. But it's still ends with, so I don't want to, to, to increase your expectations too greatly here, I don't know a lot. Because this is God that we're talking about. His thoughts are not, his ways are not. This thing's true of God and the complexity of God. It's true of him that we simply stand back in awe and say all these things are at work and all these things are true. On the one hand, he is sovereign over our salvation. He does elect some unto salvation and not others. And yet, on the other hand, he still does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. How can that all take place? How can that all be true? The answer is there's mystery here. But in God, we trust that it all, that it all really comes together. And, and it isn't, I don't think, that God's keeping this from us. Because he wants to sort of play one up on us and keep something hidden from us. I think he can tell it to us in English words. And we go, huh? Because it's of him in a way that it isn't of us. And thus, we will always be in awe of him throughout eternity for who he is. We'll always marvel at that which is true about him. And that, if I could say it this way, that he can pull off and still be consistent with utter perfection and honesty and genuineness will always be in awe of him for that. But there are some things, I think, that can help us as we think through these things if this is a, a very troubling uh, point for you. Let me quote some people so that you don't have to trust me. Derek Thomas, some of you know Derek, he was here a couple of years ago, did a whole seminar for us, a theological seminary, seminar for us, writes on this passage like this. He says, if God is sovereign... And does, not already, does he not already know the identity of this remnant? And if God does know their identity, as he most surely does, then how can he express a desire for all men to repent and live? That is, if God is sovereign and he knows all these things, is this really sincere compassion? 
And he writes this, There is a sense in which it is right to let passages such as these speak for themselves, without the encumbrance of other passages which might seem to convey another point of view. Certainly we must not allow other considerations to dilute the force of what is being said here. Equally, however, the fact that we believe the entire scriptures to be inerrant means that we must not interpret one passage so as to contradict another. What is said here may well appear to be at odds with sovereign election, but it only appears to be so. There are doctrines in the scripture which cannot be reconciled by a finite mind, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility being two such truths. No amount of reasoning can fully understand how both can be true, and yet both are true. Like the twin tracks of a railway line, they, run, they lie alongside each other, stretching out into the foreseeable distance. We tamper with either one at our peril. But then he goes on to say this. Since it is evident that some will not repent, does this not pose a problem that God longs for something that will not happen? That God sometimes expresses a desire for the fulfillment of certain things that he has not decreed in his inscrutable will to come to pass? This means, comments John Murray, <clears throat> that there is a will to the realization of what God has not decretively willed, a pleasure towards that which he has not been pleased to decree. This indeed is mysterious. And why he has not brought this to pass in the exercise of his omnipotent power and grace, what is his ardent pleasure, lies in the sovereign counsel of his will. That's simply to all say it's mysterious. But we do have a sense, don't we, that there is a certain sense in the punishment of the wicked that is satisfying, that is different than the satisfaction and the joy that comes from the repentance of sinners and all of that in God. Let me say that again. That there is a difference between the delight, if you will, as God speaks of in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the delight of judgment and the delight of redemption. There's a difference between the two. Because you see, in the heart of God, the delight comes not from inflicting punishment, but the delight of upholding truth and righteousness. In the same sense that I trust, it is not the delight of a surgeon to cut someone's body. But yet he's delighted to do it. If there's healing, that comes from that. The delight of surgery isn't the mutilation of the body. The delight of surgery is healing. For a parent, most of the time, all right, some of the time, the delight is not in inflicting pain upon your children. There's a certain satisfaction in that, though. Parents know, because you're upholding the truth. You're upholding righteousness. You're upholding that which you said is. But yet, there's a difference between that delight and seeing your kids obey. Which is really the goal, the desire of it. For a teacher, the delight isn't in failing students. The delight is in seeing them learn. Yes, you put yourself as a teacher through the pain and sorrow of the delight of failing students. Because it is delightful when they've earned it. Because you're upholding the standard. That's pleasure. To see the student suffer isn't, but upholding the standard is. So we get a sense of that. There's a great classic case in theology that was uh, brought up in the late 1800s. The classic case is one that faced George Washington. 
And I doubt you can get a hold of this original article, but you can read about this in a book uh, by John Piper entitled The Pleasures of God. I believe it's in that one. And Washington had a situation before him, and the situation before him was that there was a man who had committed treason, and he was sentenced, therefore, to die. It was Washington's job to sign the death warrant. He could have commuted the sentence, but yet he signed the death warrant. But the inscription said that he did it with sorrow and compassion for that man. But you have to ask the question, why didn't he just commute the sentence if he was so sorrowful and compassionate? How could both be true? But in a sense, we know how both can be true. Because on the one hand, he was pleased to uphold the standard. But on the other hand, he was sorry that someone must receive punishment. Piper concludes this about that particular incident. He says, in other words, God is a real and deep compassion for perishing sinners. His expression of pity and his entreaties have heart in them. There's a genuine inclination in God's heart to spare those who have committed treason against the kingdom. But his motivation is complex, and not every true element in it rises to the level of effective choice. In its great and mysterious heart, there are kinds of longings and desires that are real. They tell us something true about his character. Yet not all of these longings govern God's actions. It's governed by the depths of his wisdom through a plan that no ordinary human deliberation could ever conceive. There are holy and just reasons for why the affections of God's heart have the nature and intensity and proportion that they do. It's true that God can honestly look at us, knowing all he knows, being sovereign as he is, having made the choices that he's made before the foundation of the world, and say, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. That's true. And that's important, you see, because it's important for us as we understand the very heart of God. In fact, when you read the Bible from beginning to end, what catches our attention isn't that God created in order to judge, but God created in order to display His glory through salvation. That's what we see all the way back in the Garden of Eden after the sin of Adam and Eve. The thing that, that, that really strikes us there isn't the casting out of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden so much as it is the promise that God made that one is going to come and redeem, one is going to come and crush the head of this serpent. When we see God choose Abraham from all the people on the face of the earth and make covenant with him, what amazes us in the midst of that is God's promise to bless the whole world through him. And even as Abraham cuts that covenant, you might remember, and God instructs Abraham to go get that animal and cut it in half and lay it out. And he puts Abraham to sleep. And then God himself walks through the pieces of that covenant, walks through the pieces of that dead animal. And basically he says, symbolically, if I, meaning God, break this covenant, death be to me. But since he put Abraham to sleep, and he himself walks through it, and he said, Abraham, if you or your seed, your chosen seed, if you and your seed break this covenant, I will take it as well. That just is amazing to see the heart of God to save. The, the prophets come and they, and they tell the people to repent, repent, repent. That's the joy of God, to see you repent. 
Even as Jesus comes, the scriptures say, he didn't come to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. We hear about the joy of God. It's the joy because sinners have repented, you remember. The great story of the lost coin. That's the point. It's the joy of God, something being found. The lost sheep, the great joy of God in something being found. The parable of the prodigal son, the great joy and celebration of one who was lost, is now found in the great contrast in that story of the elder brother who's not happy. And you go, ooh, that's not what it's about. It's about the joy of the lost one who now is back, now is found. Jonah was astounded at God. He just assumed God would wipe Nineveh off the face of the earth. And when he didn't, Jonah was ticked. But it was God's compassion, you see. His desire to save those who repent. We see it over and over and over in the course of Scripture as it lines out and the Bible ends, yes, with judgment, but more significantly and more important, the great vision of the new heavens and the new earth and the great bliss and the great blessing that God has established His kingdom on earth. That is where it's all headed, you see. That's the very joy of God. God says, that's my heart. That's how I want you to know me. And so, Ezekiel, when you make this plea to the people, yes, it is a helpful one. Yes, it is a moral one. Yes, it is a passionate one, a genuine one, an honest one. Tell them, I want them to come. And not only that, we see it's a logical one. It's a logical plea. God says, why would you die? For me, one of the most chilling sentences in the whole Bible is, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? And in the same way, this chilling plea, why die? Why do that? If you turn from your wickedness, and if you turn even from trusting in your righteousness, if you understand that, You'll live. So why die? And, and I don't take any delight in condemning you, God says. So, so just come, won't you? Why not? Why would you continue to embrace that which will kill you? Why continue to embrace that which will condemn you? Why not live? And to live, you see, all need ye to do is trust me. Think of the blessings that come from trusting me. Everything that is of God becomes to you. In this life and the next. In this life, it's the sanctifying power of God to transform you. And the next, it's the bliss of everything reflecting Him. Or, you can have in this life, estrangement from God, no security, no help from him and in the next eternal death. Is this a hard question? Thomas Vincent, the old dead guy, wrote this in 1669. He says, it's not very easy to discern whether man revealed greater folly in departing from God at first or whether his folly is now more inexcusable in refusing to return to him. At first he knew by blessed experience how good it was to be near his maker, to enjoy the light of his countenance in the state of innocency, and yet he ventured to go away. 
Genesis 3. Now he feels the effect of his apostasy, for his sin has loaded him with various miseries, calamities, vexations. And yet how hardly is he persuaded to come back again. The children of men are easily induced to yield to Satan as if it were their interest to give themselves into the hands of a murderer. But the Lord, besides whom there is no Savior, may call and call with frequency, with earnestness, yet call in vain. Their hearts are dull, their ears are deaf. They will not hearken to him. Vincent says, which is crazier? For Adam to have first sinned, or for us not to return? Scripture says in Psalm chapter 14, the fool says in his heart there is no God. That's the problem. See, sin doesn't make us stupid. It makes us foolish. It makes us trust after ourselves. Brilliant people can be foolish in a spiritual sense. Saying there is no God. And that's true, but there's another sense when we say there is no God. Parenthetically, we're saying, I am He. Parenthetically, we're saying, there isn't any other God out there than I get to define all that God is to define what is good and what is evil and how life is to be lived and the meaning of life and all of that. So I define it and God says, no, 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 no. That is so foolish to think that you're in charge like that. When the children were little, it was always fun to watch them crawl into the front seat of the car and pretend like they were driving. It was cute. But it was foolish, because they really weren't driving. Isn't that how we must look? How we think we control the destiny of our own souls. So God pleads. Two applications, quickly. And I must begin here with each of us. And that is by the mercies of God to plead with each of us to examine our own hearts. As this new year begins, it's a time for us to reflect. It's a helpful time for us to think. But even if it weren't the first Sunday of the new year, even if it was the middle of the year, whatever, a passage like this, each of us has to examine our own hearts and ask simply the question. Have I yielded to Christ? Have I turned to Him? Really? Not just on the basis of tradition. Not just on the basis of my parents. Not just on the basis of the fact that that's a nice thing to do. Not just on the basis of superstition to think, well, if I, if I say I'm a Christian, then things will go better for me. You know, it's one more little rabbit's foot in my pocket. But have I really yielded to Christ? And if I haven't, why not? What is there so good about the life that I'm now living that's better than following after Christ, receiving His forgiveness, being reconciled to God, and being under His protective care? What's better than that? The second one is this that I think even as Ezekiel was called to be the watchman of his place in a very special way, in a particularly unique way, so I don't want to enter into all of that, 
But still I do want to say, who's the watchman of today? And we may look at certain ones in the context of our life, be they pastors or evangelists or however we might define them, and we see they call us to repentance and we appreciate that. But could I suggest to us that as a whole, as the church of God, we are, in this context, in this culture, in the world in which we live, the watchman of God, we're the one making this plea on behalf of God. Why not turn? Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. He says, the earth is rotting, and I've placed you here to keep it from rotting so fast. He says, you're the light of the, of the world, and everything else is darkness, but I've placed you here so people would see. He says, to you all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, therefore go and make disciples. That's what we're to do. And Paul lays it out, I think, as clearly as it can be laid out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. That was his identity. That's how he understood himself. When he woke up in the morning, he understood himself to be not his own, but yet an ambassador. That is, he was there to live and to speak on behalf of another. He was to live in such a way that people actually confused him with Jesus. And he would carry the same message on his lips that Jesus carried in his life, which was, be reconciled to God. Turn, he would say. Turn, he would say. Why would you die? That's the sincere plea of God. And that, you see, is ours to make. That's ours to make to our children. Never stop telling your kids about Jesus. Never stop. Never stop participating in the context of our church telling our kids about Jesus. Whether it be one or three or fifteen. In the context of, of your lives, the people you come in contact with. Understand yourself to be an ambassador of Christ. Understand yourself to be the watchman. Understand yourself to be the very one that God has put in the place of people right in their way, if you will, to sound the trumpet. And it may be how you live in the very character of your life. It may be in a variety of things that you do as you, as you show mercy to others. There's a great line. I don't know if I can find it in my bulletin. I never noticed it before in this hymn. Uh, God's command to love each other is required of every man. Showing mercy to a brother mirrors his redemptive plan. Yes. See, as you do that, as we're kind to each other and merciful and forgiving and all of that. You see, it mirrors that we're being ambassadors. We're being light and salt. That's what we're doing right there. And I think that we need to wake up in the morning and see ourselves, understand ourselves to be salt, light, disciple-maker ambassadors for Jesus. Just like Ezekiel was, sounding the trumpet with our lives on our lips saying, why would you die? When God's heart is to call you to himself. And we can be certain of that. And we can be certain that that's true because of this verse that comes after Paul speaks of himself as an ambassador of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because then he speaks of Jesus. And he speaks of Jesus like this. He says, for he who had no sin became sin for us, that we, in him, might become the righteousness 
God in Christ Jesus. He had no sin. How do we know that God desires to save? How do we know that God is sincere in His call for people to come to know Him? How do we know that God is sincere, that He desires people to be reconciled to Himself? We know it because we look at the cross. We know it because we look at Jesus. And He's the one who has come. We don't know who that's going to be. We weren't with God before the foundations of the world when He made all those little choices and decisions and all of that. That isn't ours to know. Ours is simply to know the heart of God and the compassion of God. And we see it in Jesus. And Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weak and weary, heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's what gives me joy. Why would you die? Come. Calls each of us. And then through us, he calls the whole world. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, you remember, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. This, you see, is our certainty of the genuineness, the sincerity of God to save. Jesus. Pray with me. Father in heaven, even as this table is set before us, I pray that we would, in fact, know your heart, your great heart to save. And thus, Father, I pray that even here, if there are those among us who are just opening, dawning, realizing the truth of Christ, that indeed they've trusted in their own righteousness, or they've simply apathetically walked through in the context of not following you. I pray, Father, that you would plead with them and even more quicken their very hearts to follow you, to turn and to trust. Father, for each of us, that we would come more deeply to be assured of your delight in saving us, and your heart to save others. And that, Father, even in the context of our own lives, that we would seek to be ambassadors, seek to be salt and light, seek to be disciple-makers. On your behalf, knowing your hearts and knowing the work of Christ to plead with the world to come that they might not die but rather live. So Father, thank you. Thank you for this table and I pray that you would set apart this bread and this juice though forever it be bread and juice I pray you use it in such a way as to bring to our minds and even our own hearts our affections you would bring all of that to Christ himself. And that by faith we would think upon him that we would love him, be grateful to him. And Father, that you would enable us to feed upon him 
that our faith might increase. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And all those who believe in the Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel to repent of your sins and come to trust in him and him alone. And that it's your heart's desire to follow him and to live as becomes a follower of Christ. As you come, I invite the, these two sections to come down the aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. As you come up here, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And as you do, be reminded of God's heart, his sincerity to save. And understand yourself to be as a follower of Christ.